Good morning, Stonebridge. For you, those of you that may not know who I am, uh, my name is Steve Bensma. I'm on the uh, pastoral staff over at Cornerstone and Ames. Uh, Matt and I have been good friends for several years now, and I uh, get to come over here and preach from time to time. So uh, my family and I moved to Marshalltown just over a year ago, and we are working on trying to start a church similar to Stonebridge over in that area. So I'm excited to be here. Uh, a lot of you guys know there was a pretty crazy storm that came through. You guys kind of got the beginning of it. It gained some intensity as it got closer to Marshalltown. Heard a few people talking afterwards. They were like, man, that was a crazy storm. And one guy was like, right? The other guy was like, no, it was derecho. If you're a Spanish speaker, you might get that. So right is derecha. Straight is derecho. Sorry, Spanish joke. I had to try. I don't know. But as this crazy storm comes through, you begin to see the aftermath, people posting pictures on Facebook, Marshalltown got hit, Tama Toledo got hit, Mar Cedar Rapids got hit, and you begin to see these posts of this devastation, houses damaged, trees down, all those kind of things. But what you, you see a lot, especially with people that I knew were believers, is you start seeing these posts of like, man, that could have been worse. What if it had been? What if it had been worse? Luckily, my family and I were all hunkered together in the basement bathroom that we have, and so we were even talking through the kids as we're here, and trees cracking, things falling on the house, and they're like worried about stuff. I'm like, house is a house, cars are cars. We don't care about any of that stuff. What matters is the six people and dog in this room. What if it had been worse? As believers, would we still have said God's promises are enough? If our house had been completely devastated, would we have still been able to say God's promises are enough? God forbid, if somebody that we knew had lost life, would we have still been able to say, God's promises are enough? Get all this motivation or the frustration of this blessing that we oftentimes think of, which we look at the material stuff that we have, pictures of cars or houses and all of our stuff that may have been damaged or was spared, and we oftentimes call those things the blessings that we have almost even sometimes tagged with that, like, hashtag blessed. If you're on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, that may annoy you as much as it annoys me. And I actually was looking through some stuff and found a funny little article back from 2015. So imagine how much more annoyed people are with the hashtag blessed stuff now. But I thought this was kind of a good little intro for where we're going with this. For the past year or so, so now six years or so, hashtag blessed has been taking the Instagram world by storm. People are so obsessed with the glorified hashtag that it's even been printed on t-shirts, sunglasses, and water bottles as of late. However, some people don't really understand the meaning of blessed and have annoyingly ruined the epic hashtag for the rest of us insta-fiends. Dictionary.com defines blessed as divinely or supremely favored, fortunate. Other definitions include bringing happiness and thankfulness and worthy of reverence or worship. None of those definitions say anything about showing off expensive things. It seems millennials these days, and multiple beyond that just group, have a tendency to post pictures of themselves at exclusive parties, wearing expensive outfits, or relaxing on luxurious vacations. Don't worry, though, it's not obnoxious at all because they acknowledge that they are hashtag blessed. Thus, we can't possibly condemn them for boasting. Hashtag blessed might as well read hashtag bragging. 
A note to Instagram enthusiasts, putting the hashtag in the caption doesn't add some notion of modesty to the events captured in the photo. If anything, it just makes the hashtag that much more annoying. So I want to explore today, what does it mean to be blessed? As we think about this idea of blessing, what does it really mean? Do we really, in our culture, really understand this idea of what does it really mean to be blessed, the blessed ones of God who is the ultimate blessing? There's a group of people two thousand, or about four plus thousand years ago that were, had, had to leave their land. They had migrated away, and this is Israel, his people, his sons that were still remaining with him, and their kids, 72 people in all we see in this passage, begin to leave the community that they're in, leave the land that they knew, leave the land that was promised to them, and go to this foreign place to be displaced, for they have no idea how long. They had the blessing. They had the promise of the blessing. They had heard these stories from past generations about the blessing that they were to receive, but I wonder if it was hard for them to maybe even see at certain times. Leaving the place that they knew to go to a place that they didn't know with a promise that they'd be protected in the midst of that time. So today we're going to look at Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, who blessed that next generation of his family right before his death. So the big thing I want you to be keeping in the back of your mind as we're going through this today is I want you to be looking for where can we find that future hope in God's promises from the past? Where can we find that future hope, that future blessing based on God's promises from the past? So we're almost at the end of the book of Genesis. And so if you are trying to ever read through the book of the Bible and you start in Genesis and try to read straight through power to you, I usually get stuck about Leviticus. But Genesis is usually pretty entertaining. And so you might be getting to the end of that book, and the way that we think about books, like whether it's a John Grisham book or a Hunger Games or anything like that, typically it's like we're trying to wait to see, like, in that one book, the whole story wrap up, right? We want to see that, like, that mystery gets solved in 42.13 seconds, like, for, like 42 minutes and 13 seconds in a TV show. We're trying to figure out how does this all wrap up in one. And so if you're looking at just the book of Genesis, you might be looking at where is this going? How are we going to know that this is completing, getting to that final point? So I want to trace this theme of the blessing with you through the book of Genesis to bring you back up to where we're at right now before we keep moving forward. So starting right in Genesis 1, verse 28, you don't have to flip through these things. If you want to and you're a speed flipper, you got that like sword drill going like you can, but don't worry, you don't need to. Genesis 1.28, God makes mankind, male and female, in his image, and he gives them this blessing. He says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the, heaven, or fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God created us, mankind, in his image and said, you are blessed. Fast forward a couple chapters to get into the Garden of Eden. That fateful moment when the fruit is eaten, God comes down, he asks Adam, what did you do? And they lose the blessing. And in the midst of the curses that God gives to first the serpent, and then the woman, and then to Adam, in the midst of that curse that he gives to the serpent, in Genesis 3.15, we see this promise, the promise of the future snake crusher, so God says to the serpent, I have put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So now that's kind of like general there, but then he changes. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. This goes from generic to specific. 
So there is one that is coming, the snake crusher will come and make all things right. So we see this promise very early on in the book of Genesis. And so now you might be reading through the rest of the book of Genesis waiting to see who is this snake crusher going to be? Which one is it going to be? And so you start going back through. It's like, okay, Adam and Eve have kids, Cain and Abel. Is it either one of them? Nope. One's dead. The other one killed him. Not those guys. Okay, well, maybe it's Noah. Nope. Not that guy. Makes this big ark, all these things. And then right afterwards, what does he do? He gets drunk and is laying around naked. So not Noah. Okay, let's fast forward a little bit longer. Fast forward through a whole bunch of years. This guy Abraham comes along. And you're thinking maybe this could be the guy. God blesses him right out of the gate. Genesis 12, he calls Abraham. He says, I'm calling you to leave your people. Come with me to this place. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your offspring. I'm going to give them all the land that I take you to. Yet, Abraham proves time and time again that it's not him. He's not the promised one that's coming. So unfortunately, we see that God's plan to restore the lost blessing through the offspring of Abraham is still somewhere coming. It's through Abraham, but it's not Abraham. Okay, well, he has these two kids. Isaac, the son of the promise. Maybe, maybe it's Isaac. We even see in Genesis 26, God's promise to Isaac renews the promises that he gave to Abraham, his father. He says, sojourn, live in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For you, or for to you and to your offspring, I will give these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. Maybe Isaac is the promised one. Nope. As you go right into the next story, and Isaac followed in the same sin pattern of his father. He tried to pass off his wife as his sister. It's like, come on, did you not learn anything from your dad? So it's not Isaac. Okay, maybe it's Isaac's son. Maybe it's Jacob. Maybe it's that one that's this, this promised one. But oh, no, nope, that guy's totally deceiver. Really quickly you realize Jacob's not the promised one that's coming to fix all these things. Yet even in the midst of that, God again renews that promise to Jacob. The same promise that he gave to Abraham, his grandfather, and Isaac, his father, he gives back to Jacob. Jacob has these 12 sons. As we begin to see the stories of these 12 sons, we get introduced to this guy named Joseph. Last week, if you were here, you heard the story of Joseph and all the junk that he went through, being sold into slavery, these dreams that he had when he was a young boy, and you begin to think, man, did we find him? Did we find him? He has no major character flaws. He seems like he could be the one. God's given him these dreams that he's going to be some sort of ruler, that his brothers and other people are going to bow down to him. Maybe Joseph is the one. Even when he is falsely accused in Potiphar's house, his character stays strong. Even when he's forgotten in the dungeon, his character stays strong. When he rises to number two in the land of Egypt, his character still stays strong. And even when those brothers of his come to him, they don't recognize him, and he has all of the power in the world at that point. He could have killed his brothers, justifiably so. His character stays strong. So we get to this point in the book of Genesis, and you might be thinking like I would be thinking, maybe this is the one. This guy, Joseph, is the best one we've seen in the story so far. He could be the Redeemer. Yet, that is not God's plan. In this text we're going to look at today, we see how God changes the order of importance and Joseph begins to take a back seat in the story of God. 
It's this reminder that we're going to see throughout this passage that this is a story not about Joseph, not about Jacob, not even really ultimately about Israel, but this is a story about God. What he's doing, the steps he's taking. So we're going to be looking at Genesis 46 through 49. I'm going to give you a quick overview and then we're going to end up focusing more on just a little section in chapter 49. But in these few chapters, what we see is Joseph sends his brothers back. He says, go grab all of your family. Grab my father. Come here. I am going to take care of you. Come to this place where we have grain. We have everything that you're going to need. I will take care of you. And so 72 of them leave Canaan, the land of the promise, and come to Egypt. We see Joseph's leadership in the midst of a massive famine and how he takes care of the local world around there. We see Jacob bless Joseph's older two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Jacob even claims Joseph's two sons as his own. In the midst of that blessing, he says, okay, these two, even though you had them, I'm calling them mine. All the rest of your kids, they belong to you. But these two, they're going to be mine. And as we're going to see, it's this weird thing that he does to replace the position of Reuben, Reuben and Simeon as the first two born that he had. And following the upside-down economy of God, the younger there receives the greater blessing. And then Jacob goes on to bless his 12 sons. And that's what we're going to look at in more depth today. But before we get there, I'm going to ask the question of what does it really mean to be blessed? Not hashtag blessed, but what does it really mean to be blessed? We already established that blessing comes from God, Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and gave them a commandment. Genesis 12, in the midst of that promise that he gave to Abraham, God says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. So God chooses whom he's going to bless. Let's focus first on that blessedness of God because God can't bless anything unless he is the one that is blessed. He is the blessed one. He is that perfect one. Even the things, the little bit of stuff that we get, it's the image of God that really brings the blessing that we have. We are image bearers of God. So God's blessedness means that God delights fully in himself in all that reflects his character. We then as humans, as mere mankind, male and female, we imitate God's blessedness then when we find delight and happiness in all that is pleasing to God. And we find our greatest blessedness in delighting in the source of all those good qualities, which is God himself. So we're not blessed because we have cool stuff. We're not blessed because of a car. We're not blessed because of experiences that we have. We're blessed because of the blessed one, God, has chosen to bless us. Now, before we start getting our heads a little bit big, it's not because of anything that we've done, is it? It's not like we're super blessed because of something that we have done and other people aren't. God's chosen to bless some and not others, and I can't really explain why, but it's God's universe, it's God's story, and he gets to do that. And we have to remember that it's not because of something special that we've done, so we look down on other people. We have to recognize that the blessing that we have is a gift from him. So if you've got your Bibles handy, let's look at Genesis chapter 49, and we're going to look through this whole situation where Jacob begins to bless his sons. But I want to look at the bookends of this first. So look at verse 1, 
And then verse 28 with me here. Verse 1, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Verse 28, the end of all this, says, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to them. All right, now why focus on these two bookends here? So Israel is giving the individual blessings to each one of his children with one eye looking towards the future, waiting for the promised blessing that was promised in the past. So he starts off, I want to tell you what is to come, but I'm going to root that in the promises of the past. It's the entire theme of what's happening here. So Jacob is rooting this entire promise, this entire everything that's happening in the past. Now Jacob has 12 sons like we've already established, and like any normal father with a lot of kids, uh, he completely mixes up the order. Any parents of like multiple kids? You start like saying one name and all of a sudden another name like sneaks out. Like I, had, I was one of three kids. My brother was Dan. I'm Steve. And the amount of times Stan got yelled at, I'm not even sure who that guy was, but he took the brunt of a lot of stuff when we were idiots as kids. So Jacob begins to bless his sons. And at first, he blesses son number one, number two, number three, number four, and he ends with 11 and 12. But in the middle, all of a sudden, it's 10, 9, 5, 7, 8, 6. It's like he doesn't even know what he's doing. He's like, which, just somebody come here. There's too many of you. I can't count. Just figure out an order, and I'll just bless you as you come through. I, I, I've got four kids. I can kind of understand this a little bit where it's like, it's that moment where it's like, um, which one are you right now? Like, it's been a long week. Just, I don't know, come here and I'll pray for you. So that's a little bit of almost what's happening here, but there's still intentionality with Jake and, and what's happening. So I want to go through a few notable moments here in this chapter. So Reuben, he's the first one. In a nutshell, he will no longer excel. The name Reuben means to excel, but Abraham, or not Abraham, I keep messing that one up. Jacob tells him, you will no longer excel. And it's really because Reuben defiled Abraham's bed, doing something inappropriate that he should not have done. So Reuben has lost his position as the first son. He's lost his position of prominence because of foolish decisions that he made. All right, so he's out of the way. Now next, he gives kind of a, a, a couplet. So Simeon and Levi he blesses at the same time, but because they instigated bloodshed against Shechem, a defenseless city, he said, now you have both lost your right to the land. Well, that's not a really great blessing, is it? But because of poor decisions that they made, they have no right, no claim to the land. And if you look forward, Simeon's whole tribe is kind of engulfed in Judah. And so even on the map, it's like kind of this like goofy thing that you look at. And like Simeon, they just kind of got like sucked into Judah and really had no stake in the land. Levi, they're the ones that eventually became the priests and had no land given to them. Okay, then the next six are this generic blessing about victory and prosperity. Like you're going to be awesome, you're going to be cool, you're going to be rich, you're going to kill your enemies. And it's just these six guys that kind of come through in rapid fire and it's all really similar in those. Then you get to Joseph, the 11th son, and he focuses on his future prosperity. And there's this blessing that is referenced six times in the midst of that. Now, 
remember back though, we didn't get into all the depth of this, but in the chapter before, in chapter 48, Abraham, uh, keep doing that, Jacob goes through and he blesses Ephraim and Manasseh. And so Joseph's future blessing actually comes through those two. And even if you were to look forward into the rest of the book of the Bible and the Old Testament, you see as you're going through the tribes, there is no tribe of Joseph. There's 12 tribes, but no tribe of Joseph. But there is a tribe of Manasseh and a tribe of Ephraim. So because Jacob had taken those two as his own. And there's this weird thing where Joseph kind of becomes a footnote in the story. There is no tribe of Joseph anymore, even though he seemed like he could have been the one. Then Benjamin, the twelfth son, victorious conquest over his enemy is his blessing. So we see two common images threaded throughout these blessings. The first is of them being victorious victors victorious warriors. The defeat of the enemy is the prelude to this messianic peace, this messianic, the Messiah, the one that is to come. So the prelude to that is that they are going to be victorious warriors going about. But then the other is this prosperity and abundance that they're going to receive. Now behind this promise of prosperity and blessing is that picture of the Garden of Eden that they would have grown up hearing about. Promises lost, blessing lost, kind of saying, remember paradise that was lost. That is the promise. That is the future. There's this messianic promise and paradise. Now I want to dive in a little bit more to the blessing of Judah, the fourth son. Kind of skipped over him going through that. This is where we're going to camp out a little bit more. Now, Judah, he's kind of the surprising one in this. At first, Like, remember, up until this point, Joseph has been the hero of the story. Joseph's been the one that you begin to look at, and you're like, Joseph could be the guy. Like, this could be the snake crusher. All of a sudden, Judah comes up out of nowhere in this. And so if you, if we looked back through Judah's life in a nutshell, chapter 37, as they, the, the brothers have captured Joseph, thrown him down in a well, some want to kill him, and Judah is the one with a brilliant idea of, hey, instead of killing him, let's just sell him off into slavery. That was Judah that came up with the idea. But then you fast forward and later in the story, after the brothers have all come before Joseph and they don't realize it's their brother Joseph, Judah is the one that pledges safety for Benjamin, the younger son, when Joseph requests all of the sons, all the brothers to be there. Something has changed in Judah's heart. The next chapter, chapter 44, that you guys went through last week, Judah is the one that leads his brothers back to Joseph. And then he pleads with Joseph to save Benjamin's life. He says, no, my father cannot lose Benjamin. Please let him go free and take me as your captive. Is this the same guy that just sold his brother into slavery? Then in the chapters for today, we see Judah being the one that leads his family into Goshen where they're gonna begin to live And so we see this this rising in prominence of Judah in the midst of the story, and Joseph begins to take this back seat. And here in chapter 49, we see Judah receives the greatest blessing, and he becomes the dominant line. So let's read, starting in verse 8 of chapter 49. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. 
He crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter, the crown, shall never depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the nations, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. Now his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. There's a lot going on in this. And some of that stuff you might read on first glance and be like, what is he talking about? I realize this guy is old, but is he already losing his mind? What is he saying here? What we see here, though, is Judah now has become the prominent son. The first three sons have been removed out of the position of importance, and Judah has now risen to that first prominence spot. He's going to be a victorious warrior. And even that promise of the sons of your father will bow down to you. But if, if you remember Joseph's dreams from a few chapters back, Joseph had those similar dreams. And we saw that happen when the brothers bowed down to him, but that was only for a moment. That was only for a time. Judah's promise is eternal. Judah is the one. Now, Judah will be that holding place for the throne until one comes to whom it belongs. It's kind of a, a stand-in in a way where God is saying, Judah... You're not the one. You're not the promised one, but it's going to come through your alliance. So at first it was, it was Abraham, and then it was to Isaac, and then it was to, to Jacob. And now, Judah, you, your line is going to be the one that carries on this promise, the promise of this blessing that we will see. Now, here's a couple notable things in the midst of that. It's not just for those people. And this is actually almost a callback to uh, Genesis 12 when God blesses Abraham. He says that I'm going to bless all of the nations through your offspring. The nations, not just you little group of people. It's going to extend to all the nations, and we see that even in this. Revelation 5, verses 5 and 9, we kind of see this kind of come into fruition. Revelation was the last book of the Bible, and what you see in this is this, this picture of some of the, what's going to happen in the end times. And we see this promise to Judah even coming to fruition at the end of the story. The writer says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then a little bit further down it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God and every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So this promise that we see to Judah, we see fulfilled later. This is not a lost promise. There is future coming that is directly connected to this. Then you get this like weird imagery of like, donkeys being tied to the choicest vine and with us not being a really uh, agricultural especially not typically like a wine growing society it's, it gets a little lost on us at first <clears throat> but what Jacob is telling Judah is that in this time when the one comes when that one comes that is the one that is the chosen one the one that is worthy the one that all of this happens when he comes into reign the choice vines are going to be so plentiful that you can tie your donkey to them and let them eat them. This is the choice vine, the good stuff. Let the donkey eat it because there's enough of it. Don't even worry. Then it says that, and he washed his garments in wine. 
Usually it's when wine gets on stuff that you have to try to wash it out of it, but what they're saying is that the vintage wine, the good stuff, is going to be so plentiful that it's going to be like wash water. So common. This is the reign of the coming Messiah. This is the reign of the future of the tribe of Judah. And at the end of that it says, his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And I don't have enough time to get into this, but if you want to have a really fun image of the coming Messiah, so Jesus came, he's coming again, go look at Isaiah 63 and Revelation 19. There's a picture of Jesus when he comes back again where he is riding this white horse, his garments are stained red. There's a sword that comes out of his mouth. He has a tattoo on his thigh. Yes, Jesus has a tattoo. Super cool. But this guy, he he comes back, and it's just this image of this conquering warrior king coming back and saying, I have trodden the wine presses alone because no one was there with me. And he comes back to establish his kingdom, and he comes back to establish that eternal reign. So what we are seeing here in the midst of this promise to Judah is the future coming Messiah is going to come through this line of Judah. All of this is pointing to the one who is to come. And that one who was to come is Jesus. So as we wrap our heads around all of this, you might be wondering, okay, what do I do with all that? How is that supposed to impact me? How is that supposed to affect me? Now, a few points of application, a few points to think about here. Remember that God does not work like we do. He has that upside-down economy where he uses the weak to show up the strong. And as we read through this story, it seems like Joseph is going to be that promised one, that one is that is coming, yet God changes the story and totally flips it upside down, and the one that seemed like he was the important one takes a total backseat and is basically just a footnote in the rest of history. I think God does that specifically to say this is not a story about Abraham. This is not a story about Isaac. This is not a story about Jacob, and it is not a story about Joseph, but this is a story about me, God, the creator, the one who is, the one that blessed you. This is where the promises come from, not from those individuals. You see, God's promises are bigger than saving 72 people from a famine. God's promises that his blessings will extend to the nations, not to one little people group living in the Middle East. Then we see that this promise is to come through the line of Judah, and it's this whole foreshadowing. Eventually, King David comes from that line whom God promised one day his descendant would sit on the throne eternally. Judah becomes the southern tribe as the, the nation eventually splits after Solomon. And it's the southern tribe that they're, they're not great, but they're not as bad as the northern tribe who just completely gets wiped out. We see <clears throat> ultimately that it's this line through which a young baby was born 2,000 years ago, a line in which that savior of the world came from. So God roots his future promises in his past promises, his future blessing in those past See, Jesus was the one that was promised in Genesis 3. Jesus is that snake crusher. Jesus is the one through whom Abraham's descendants would bless the world. Jesus is the king who is worthy to come and demand obedience from the nations. Jesus is that one who was to come. 
uh, we now have the blessing of seeing God's eternal blessings fulfilled. We have that future lens because of the past. When this was written, they didn't see Jesus. They didn't know who Jesus was. They knew that one was coming, but they didn't know who it was. We have the benefit of seeing Jesus has come, and he is coming yet again. So we're in this in-between time where we can see this. We can be reading through the book of Genesis. We can see the, the, the thumbprints of Jesus through this entire story. And yet we know that there's still more to come. God's blessedness shows us that the greatest possible happiness is to be found only by imagining the blessedness of God himself. And we can see that image perfectly embodied in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you this morning, what would it look like for you to live your life this week in light of that blessing? Of the promise giver, the promise keeping God that has promised you blessing to live for the future glory and promised blessing based on those past promises that God has already fulfilled. Now, for those of you that have been around for a while, the, the faces that are familiar as I even walk in here, maybe this looks like beginning to truly trust God's promises in your life. Maybe that means letting go of past pain and hurt in relationships where you have been putting yourself in that position of control. You have kind of created that like lowercase g, God in control experience for yourself in some relationships. Maybe it's letting go of that, letting the big G God be the real God. Maybe it's a time that we turn again to the author and perfecter of our faith, that one who is the blessed one of God, Jesus Christ, and let him shower you with the blessings that have been promised to you. Now, maybe you're here today and this is all new to you, whether you're here, whether you're watching the live stream and you're sitting at home and maybe even today, like for you, that if you're watching this at home and you're thinking like, I can't go back to a church, I had a bad experience. So that's you today. Maybe this is the first time you've come to a church building or watched a live stream in a while and you've been feeling down and beaten up by this crazy year of 2020 that we've been having and folks, we still have an election to get through. This year's not even over yet. Talk about a crazy year. But if that's you today, whether you're here or you're sitting at home, if that's you today, maybe this message is new. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing about this idea of this promise-keeping God, this promise-giving God. I don't want you to leave this place today unless you know that this blessing that we are talking about is a free gift from God that he is wanting to give to you. There's nothing that you have to do to earn it. You don't have to be good enough or holy enough or hashtag blessed enough. There's nothing like that that happens. There is nothing that you do to earn this blessing. There's nothing that you do to earn this gift. You see, this gift was paid for 2,000 years ago by a man that hung on a tree. And his name is Jesus Christ. So if this is you today, don't leave this place without knowing with certainty that you are truly blessed. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you today, God, knowing that we are image bearers of you, 
but yet, Lord, that we pale in comparison to the real thing. God, we are broken individuals, broken men and women that are in need of a Savior, Lord. And God, I'm so grateful that we're, we're not having to still wait for the Messiah. We're not having to, to look forward with hope, Lord, but we actually get to look back and see your Son who came. Your Son is the fulfillment of all the promises that you had for us, Lord. God, that we be, can, can look back, not just on the promises that you, you gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but we get to look back on the promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ, knowing that our future is certain because of him. So God, this, this morning, may we know that the promises that we have, the blessing that you have promised to us is true, is real, and is found in your perfect son, Jesus Christ. So God, remind, that, remind us of that this week as we face trials, as we face difficulties, as we are trying to get through life, Lord, will you continually remind us of who you are? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.